0: Reminds me of that verse when the Lord sends the rains And he sends all his creatures packing (laughs) Or this creature for a bucket Because I got a leak in the roof (laughs) Jerry told me we had two inches of rain last night That'll, uh, that'll make the desert smile. Amen? That God would give this planet rain is an act of immense grace and mercy. Amen? Okay. So I want to remind you that there are some CDs back there that we're using for... Uh, uh, supplemental material for the class. And uh, so be sure and grab one of those. There's a whole pile of them. There's actually three different CDs back there. They're free for the taking. Please do grab one. There's also three recommended books back there on the table. Um, so uh, have at those as well. We're asking uh, for a suggested donation there. Uh, if you can afford it. If you can't, have at it. Um I'm going to try to, uh I have a handout today that's just a one pager, and it's because I'm thinking I might make it all the way to there. And so we'll, uh, if we get there next week, that, that handout will have a replacement. So just kind of warning you ahead of time. Okay. Let's see. What am I forgetting? Okay. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, Lord, You are so gracious and loving, God. We praise You. We honor You and we bless Your glorious name. Father, we are so grateful that You have been so kind to us to send our Lord Jesus to die in our place. God, a blood sacrifice for our crimes. We thank you. Lord, we are humbled by your love. We're humbled by your grace. And we want to love you, God. And we want to serve you. And we want to walk in all of your ways and follow you. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to thank you. We want to praise you. You're awesome. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here with all of your holy family, the saints who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for the privilege that we have, God, to have Bibles, entire Bibles, Genesis to Revelation. We thank you, God, for the Scripture. We thank you for the wisdom and the knowledge that you impart to us by your blessed Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have in this nation to be here and to freely proclaim your word. And we ask God that through it we would be strengthened in our faith, encouraged to love you, and to love our neighbor. We ask now that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so then, in... um, in our series on the gospel, we um, have been talking about what is the gospel, and just trying to define it at first, and, and uh, we, we talked a little bit about the nature of the gospel, that it's a message, and uh, <clears throat> of course the, the message has many different elements to it, but we talked about the fact that the message was really simple, and at the same time, rather complex. And, and that at the core or the essential part of the message is really just the simple truths of God, man, Christ, response. And, and that the simple truths of the gospel were expressed in, in those four categories. And um, nevertheless, at the same time, the gospel is a complex message because it has related to it uh, so many different elements of the kingdom of God that uh, are, are in, a, in a stage of fulfillment right now that has not yet reached its climax, uh, yet that uh, God is, has a plan to fulfill uh, all prophecy, to fulfill uh, not only Jesus' priestly ministry, but also his kingly ministry, has yet to have its fulfillment and its climax. And, and so the kingdom is now, but is not yet in that sense. And so, uh, there are so many different things related to, to, to the gospel that, that, that make it kind of complex. Nevertheless, uh, God is just showing us all of those different um, uh, aspects of the gospel. As we read through the scriptures, we see so many different kinds of scenarios and portrayals of, of gospel truths and how they are ex- expressed in so many different ways. Well... Uh, after kind of talking a little bit about the nature of the gospel, I told you I was going to do uh, an exposition on Romans chapter 3 verses 19 through 28 and we started that last week. And I wanted to just remind you that as we're going through the text of scripture, I was, I was um, going to be using these different descriptive words that describe the nature of the gospel to you and I wanted you to see those concepts in the text of scripture. So that as we're going through this text of scripture, I'm pointing these things out to you. That the gospel is theological, and it's universal, and it's biblical, and it's got all of these aspects to it. It's Christological. And and um, having talked to some degree about those, I'm wanting you to see that in the text of scripture. So that as you're reading through different gospel texts, you have this mind for the nature of the gospel. And God is teaching you and showing you what the gospel is and what it is like and what it is for through, through an understanding of what its nature is, okay? And so I'm pointing that out with these different descriptive words, and I have those in large, or, or should I say, darker bold there on your handout. These elements that are the nature of the gospel. And so, last week we dove into this text in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 28, and I was trying to give you the background uh, from Romans, and spent quite a bit of time talking about that section between Romans chapters 1 through 3, and explaining there the context in which we find this gospel passage, okay? So, just to kind of remind you real quick, if you look on your handout on page number 68, right at the top, there's a, there's a brief outline of uh, Romans chapters 1 through 5, okay, and uh, look with me, if you will, at the section of that outline, which is Romans chapters 1 through 3, and there you'll see that chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, is just an introduction to the book of Romans, and there Paul says, I was a I was appointed as a herald of the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith with the Gentiles. And and, and, and there he gives us that, that tremendous statement about the fact that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that in it the righteousness of God is revealed in chapter 1 verse 17. And uh, Paul then begins the new section looking there at your outline From chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 1, verse 32, he's talking about the guilt of the Gentile world. And Paul is establishing how the Gentile world is condemned before God because of their wickedness and their suppression of truth and unrighteousness, in his words. And uh, so he goes on in those verses and he establishes the guilt of the Gentile world through the rest of chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 2 verse 16 Paul is giving principles of God's judgment and in that whole text he goes on then not only to describe the fact that God has a judgment day and a reckoning for all men both Gentile and Jew but he goes on to establish the guilt of the Jew before God and in looking at your outline there chapter 2 verses 1 through chapter 3 verse 8. Paul is establishing the guilt of the Jew before God. So, here he comes right out. Paul's giving us a technical discourse on the Gospel in the book of Romans. He comes right out in chapter 1, and he hits us with the bad news. And don't you know about the Gospel? You can't get the good news until you understand the bad news. Amen? Okay, now store that in your memory banks about the nature of the Gospel. You can't bring somebody through your words and your evangelistic presentation to an understanding of these things, of the good news, until they understand the bad news. Obviously, you can't do anything. God has to reveal it to them. But the point is is that until we get the bad news, the good news doesn't mean anything. Amen? Until you realize the depth of depravity and sin of the human nature and the, the, the profound rebellion of mankind against the holy God and the profound consequences of that from God, right? Being saved doesn't really have a lot of significance, right? Not to mention that sinners naturally have no fear of God before their eyes, like it says in Romans 3, right? And and so, um, obviously these are things that God has to show someone by the Holy Spirit, but the point is, is that Paul, in establishing this technical discourse on the gospel, comes right out and gives us the bad news. And he tells us of the great guilt of the Gentiles in chapter 1. And then chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, he's establishing the principles of God's judgment and the guilt of the Jews. So that when we get to our text in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul has his concluding remark about that whole section. And his concluding remark is this, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that is the Jews, right? That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because you see, he already established back in chapter 1 the accountability of the Gentiles to God and their guilt and their condemnation. And then when he establishes the guilt of the Jew, he does it by a presentation of the law and its high and holy standards and their inability to keep it. And so he concludes with this remark that whatever the law says, right, it has made uh, all the Jews accountable to God and as he had established earlier in the the passage that the, the conscience of the Gentiles had actually established their condemnation before God. Because in their deeds their conscience was either accusing or defending. Right? And those were those were principles of God's judgment that he laid out in Romans 2 verses 1 through 16. So when Paul gets to our text here, he is he has established the guilt of the Jew, the guilt of the Gentiles, the fact that God is going to have a day of judgment when he will judge men's secrets which is what his gospel declares, Romans 2:16, and and that now he says that the whole world is accountable to God. And of course, we looked at verse 19 and verse uh, part of verse 20 last week. But this is where we pick up. And Paul has has uh, he's made these conclusions, and he's 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 now going to move into a whole new section of text. He's transitioning. From his discussion about the gospel, from the bad news to the good news. Okay? As soon as he gets to verse 19, he's making a transition. He sums up the bad news by saying that the law has condemned everyone, right? The law and the conscience has condemned everyone, and that the whole world is accountable to God. And then in verse 20, he just makes it really clear for us he says because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin okay And so he's saying the sin the, the law makes sin really clear to us. it helps us to see what sin is. through the law comes the knowledge of sin. through the law does not come justification. Through the law comes condemnation. Why? Because it shows us all how great of sinners we are. Amen? That's why by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Why? Because no one has kept it. No one can keep it. We're all depraved by nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? And so the point is is that... The law comes out, and it gives us a crystal clear picture of what our sin is and just how guilty we are. And furthermore, it holds us then accountable to God so that every mouth is closed, in which we said meant that what? Nobody has any defense. Nobody has any excuse. Our mouths are closed. We cannot stand before God and give excuses for violating his law time after time after time after time after time. <coughs> Amen. So we don't have any excuses. We're held accountable to God. Remember I was telling you last week, this is a desperate plight. The whole world is accountable before God by the law of God and has no excuse. This is bad news. Could there be worse news? (laughs) Right? Except maybe the sound of the consequences of it all. Or maybe even enduring the actual consequences. But the point is is that the whole world is accountable to God for his law. And every mouth is closed. No one has an excuse. Does this not speak to the nature of the gospel itself? That unless God does something, men can't be saved because they cannot be justified before God on the basis of their own good works. They can't stand before the judgment bar of a holy God in his courtroom and be justified by something that they've done. they violated his law a thousand times if they've done it once. Amen? So this is the terrible news of the gospel. Everybody's guilty before God and worthy of death. And that's when Paul transitions... And in verse 21, he talks about the good news. And he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And in verse 22, he tells us what that is. Amen? So, <clears throat> just want to just briefly go over 20 again. You've got three questions on your question handout from verse 20. In regard to being justified in God's sight... This is one of your questions. Paul again established the guilt of the entire world with reference to no flesh, that is, no human being. These, he says, cannot be justified by obedience to the law, rather that their failure to keep it establishes what sin is, transgression of his law. See that? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law is, one of the purposes of the law, is to show us what sin is because it shows us how we've transgressed it, okay? Here's another question on your hand, on your questions. Mankind has failed not only at violating what the law forbids, its penal sanctions, but also at fulfilling what it commands, its preceptive requirements, okay? Remember how I was telling you when we were talking about the atonement? That Christ, not only did he fulfill the penal sanctions but he also fulfilled the preceptive requirements so everything that the law said don't do christ did not do and everything that the law said to do christ did and so not only is the death of jesus meritorious for us but the life of jesus is meritorious for us his death pays the penalty for sin his life affords us the perfect righteousness of god amen you with me? Two great truths in the cross. The life and the death of Jesus. Okay? Both are extremely important in, in our reconciliation to God. And, uh, and so the law, with all of its high and holy commands, has indeed caused the sin of mankind to be seen with utmost clarity. And it condemns us as all guilty before God's judgment bar. It has given us a measuring line. You see, the law is like a measuring tape to show us that we all fall short. Right? It's a meter. It's a gauge. You want to know if you have the righteousness of God? Read the law. Right? What's it do? Condemnation. The law, the ministry of the law. One of the ministries of the law is the condemnation. It shows us what sin is. It makes it crystal clear to us. Okay? It's a measuring line that reveals our treason and our rebellious refusal to submit to our Creator in His commands to love Him and to love our neighbor. And here's another question on your handout. Here Paul establishes two very important elements in the Gospel. The universality of the guilt of mankind before God, both Jew and Gentile. Remember that in Paul's words, when he refers to Jew and Gentile, for Paul, that's like saying the whole world. Because in the Jewish mind, there's two categories of people in the world, right? Jews and non-Jews. So when Paul says the Jew and the Gentile, he means everybody, okay? But here he's establishing the fact that... That, uh, that mankind is universally guilty. And so, if you will, the gospel is universal in the, in the bad news. The bad news is a universal proclamation to all men everywhere and women, all men and women everywhere. You with me? So it's universal in its, in its condemnation. It's universal in its bad news. Isn't anybody who's escaping the bad news? Because they've been good. On the contrary, right? Not only that, but the inability for anyone to be justified before God by good works or obedience to the law of God because of their utter failure to fulfill it. That means that the gospel is personal. Not only is it universal for the whole corporate body of mankind but it's also personal for every single individual person because every single individual person has violated and transgressed the law of God and is personally liable to God. Are you with me? The gospel is therefore personal. It's personal. It's universal and it's personal. Okay? Okay. This is consistent with Paul's gospel and other sections of scripture as well. For instance, Galatians 2:16 and 17 where he says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Okay? Very clear in the teaching of Paul. You can't get there by obedience to the law because you've already failed at fulfilling it. Right? And remember how you failed. You failed in the penal sanctions. So when the law said don't do this, you did it. And you failed in its preceptive requirements because when the law said do this, you didn't do it. Are you with me? Okay. So then, that we arrive then at verse 21 where he says, but now, okay, so see he was talking about how the whole world was accountable to God because of what the law said and that when the law said what it said that we became knowledgeable of what sin was. Now listen to what he says. He takes the law and all of its condemnation and he puts it to the side and look what he says, but now apart from the law. You with me? Don't miss that point. Apart from the law. Okay? He's moving the law over here just for a moment so we can consider an idea or a concept. And he's saying, apart from the law. Okay? Apart from the law what, Paul? The righteousness of God has been manifested. Don't miss that, family. Don't miss that. Those words are extremely important. This is the the pillars that hold up the doctrine of sola fide the doctrine of faith alone okay because what we're saying is the righteousness of god has been manifested it's showed up it's here it's been revealed it's a done deal to tell us die. are you with me Paul had explained in chapters 1, verse 16 and 17 that the gospel revealed the righteousness of God and that this was the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Remember that statement in chapter 1? He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. He says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It shows us the righteousness of God. Are you with me? Okay, so uh, here he tells us that this righteousness of God has been manifested. Do you understand? That's a past tense. And that's extremely important. Paul is saying this thing already happened. The righteousness of God has already happened. It's here. And guess what? I'm going to reveal it to you. That's what he's saying. And let me tell you, he's saying, (laughs) it's not obedience to the law. Mm. That got us in big trouble and closed everybody's mouth. Are you with me? Okay, so then, when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God here, now don't miss this, this is a fundamental point, okay? When Paul speaks of the righteousness of God here, he does not speak of that righteousness um, which God requires only. So Paul's not saying, when he talks about the righteousness of God, he's not not just saying, this is what God requires. He's not just saying, God requires perfect obedience to the law, or you can't stand in his presence. He is saying that, but he's not saying only that. Okay? Get this point. Paul is not speaking of that righteousness which God requires only, but a righteousness which of itself comes from God and is an objective reality that has now been revealed or manifested. You understand? Paul's saying the righteousness of God has, has been manifested. It already happened. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Paul, cross, Christ, Jesus, you with me? The righteousness of God has been manifested. And let me share some good news, right? On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Are you with me? You with me? It's not just what God requires, but it's what God provides. That's good news. That's good news, family. So here I am, helpless, weak sinner totally desperate and totally hopeless, condemned by the law, and the good news comes along and God says, here's my beloved son and his perfect righteousness. It's yours. You can be justified as a free gift by my grace. Will you just believe? You with me? Glorious. Glorious truth. Okay then. So understand this thing. It's not just the righteousness God requires, and it is. The righteousness of God, what God requires. Jesus did everything God required. Right? But it's also what he provides. It's therefore an objective thing. It's not subject to anything. It's an object. It's something we look to, something we trust in, something we believe in, something we follow, something we value. Are you with me? It's an objective reality. The gospel is an objective reality. Remember, I was teaching you that when we were talking about the atonement. That the atonement of Christ was something he already did. It's a done deal. Now we just look at it and we believe. It's like Moses lifting up the serpent in the desert. Right? And they look and they're healed. Right? So so here's the whole deal. It has been manifested. And guess what? It's apart from the law. It's not about you obeying the law anymore. This is apart from the law. This is the law fulfilled perfectly by God. He provided it. He did it. And He offers it up to us freely. It's an objective reality outside of ourselves. It's not subject to anything we have done. Jesus Christ fulfilled the righteousness of God 2,000 years before I was born. Are you with me? Family, this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Period. There's no other religion that has this doctrine. Okay? This is how you know a Christian and a non-Christian. This is how you know a true church and a false church. Are you with me? This is the plumb line. This is the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It's right here in Romans chapter 3. Okay? God has provided... His own righteousness which He requires. And we receive it. It's from outside of ourself. You can't earn your way to God. You understand? Okay then. This was Martin Luther's great discovery. That is, that the righteousness of God was a foreign righteousness. Apart from our own works and apart from the very law of God itself. Now, this is the essential part of the gospel. Hear what I'm telling you. This is the essential part of the gospel and of the Christian faith, the principle of sola fide. That is, that the righteousness of God is an objective, foreign reality provided by God and received by faith, not merited of our own works. Are you with me? You see how you see how if the righteousness of God has been manifested back when Paul's writing Romans, right? That 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 righteousness is what it is all in and of itself. And that there isn't anything you can do to add to it. And there isn't anything you can do to take from it. All you can do is receive it or not receive it. Are you with me? It is in and of itself an objective thing outside of you. You with me? Okay, this this is the essential truth of Christianity. We call it justification by faith. And that's why I can tell you with assurity that your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Because either you possess the righteousness of God which is in Christ or you do not. Are you with me? Okay, then. So, here, see also that God's righteousness has been manifested. It is an historical reality that we observe from outside. That is, the life and death of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The life and death of Jesus himself is the manifested righteousness of God. You with me? Hear what I'm telling you. The life and the death of Jesus himself is is the manifested righteousness of God. So when somebody comes along and says, what is the righteousness of God? Or what is the righteousness that God requires? Or they want to talk about the righteousness of God. Let me tell you the answer to that question. One word. Jesus, the person of Christ. He is the righteousness of God. You with me? Now, how objective and outside of ourselves is that? It's completely another being entirely. He is the righteousness of God. Are you with me? And that's not just my words. That's the words of Scripture. Jesus is our righteousness. This righteousness has been manifested. Okay? It's a historical reality that's taken place. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life and fulfilled all of the perceptive requirements of the law of God, and then he died on the cross, the the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, and offered his life as a guilt and a sin offering for our sins. Okay? So he lived the perfect life to fulfill God's righteousness, and then he gave his life to pay the penalty for our sins. Okay? That is a historical reality that took place before Paul wrote this letter and before I was born. Okay? You with me? So that Jesus himself is the very righteousness of God. His life and his death is what God requires and what God provided. Is it not God himself that's dying on the cross? Amen? And so, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says it like this, but by his doing... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, Jesus is all those things. He is the righteousness of God. Okay? So here's poor Martin Luther, right? Grows up, young man, he goes to school to be an attorney. Right? Man, he gets this thing down pat. He understands law. Right? He understands justice. He understands authority and all those kinds of things, right? Then he goes and he reads the law of God, and he's shaking and trembling in his shoes. He's thinking, how can I ever possibly be justified before God? I have violated this law a thousand times to Sunday. Right? Poor guy goes to the confession every day. He's in the confessional for three and four hours at a time, recounting every possible sin of his thought life and everything he can possibly think of. Right? Can't even get back to his room before he thinks a sinful thought and falls apart a wreck again. You with me? He understood law and justice. Right? But then when he was reading through Romans, God opened up his eyes to see that Martin Luther isn't going to provide the righteousness of God, but that God has already provided it in Jesus Christ. And his soul was freed. His soul was freed. His soul entered the rest of God. His sins are forgiven. Amen? Amen. You with me? Glorious, glorious reality right here in Romans. See also that it is the righteousness of God. You know what the word of means? It speaks about the origin, or it's very similar to the word from, right? It's like Sean from Albuquerque, or Sean of Albuquerque. Same kind of meaning, are you with me, right? The righteousness from God, or the righteousness of God. It has its origin in God. It's God's righteousness. You with me? And it's objective. God's providing it. It's perfect. You're still struggling with assurance of your forgiveness? Well, if God provides it, how perfect do you think it is? How free are you? Free indeed. Amen. Amen. Glorious truth. Yeah, your sins are heinous and so are mine. (laughs) But His grace is greater than all of our sin. All of our sin. His grace is... Greater. Are you with me? It's perfect to meet the need which God requires. See also, it's God's righteousness. That is, it's theological. This is a message about God. Are you with me? What is the gospel? It's a message about God and His holiness and his judgment and his awesome power. It's 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 a message about God and how He created man and put man on the earth. And how man has violated God. And fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, man has defamed the glory of God. He's rebelled against God. Right? It's a message about God. And it's a message about man. And it's a message about what's happened in that relationship. And furthermore, how God now in Christ has come and provided the necessary means to reconcile us to himself. It's God's work. He reconciles us by the blood of the cross. Are you with me? Okay. So, this righteousness of God is that righteousness which God both requires and provides. Here, Paul establishes two more very important elements in the gospel. It's historical, right? It has been manifested. And it's theological. It's the righteousness of God. It's about God and His righteousness. It's about right standing with God. It's about right relation with God. What this righteousness provides for us. Right? Okay. Look what he says. That apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now what's he saying? Now what's he saying? Here's what he's saying in a nutshell. Right? Right? The whole Bible, which in his day was the Old Testament, the whole Bible is a witness of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. Right? The law and the prophets testify. That's what he's saying. The everything that Moses wrote and everything thereafter, right? The law and the prophets for Paul in in this context is a reference to the whole Bible of his day, the Old Testament. Okay, and so here's what he's saying. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets. Here he establishes that the entire Old Testament is a witness to this righteousness of God apart from the law. Now just think about your knowledge of the Bible. And let's think about the Old Testament for a minute. And let's think about Christ in the Old Testament. Okay, now, can you think of certain passages in the Old Testament that are pointing to the gospel with a big red flag? Yeah. They're all over the place, right? I mean, if you've been in this class for two years, we've gone through many of them, right? But the, the point is just that they're, they're almost on every single page of the Old Testament, almost, right? It's just one scenario after another where God has given us a prophecy or a typology, right? Right? Or some kind of sign pointing to the future, pointing to the fulfillment, pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the cross. Right? Amen? And so do you see how Paul can say the law and the prophets are a witness to the righteousness of God, which is in Christ? Of course they do. Of course they do. Of course the law and the prophets, it's all over the Old Testament. Both the law and the prophets, a reference to the entire Old Testament, that being the Pentateuch, the first five books. And the historical wisdom and prophetic literature, many times when the apostles refer to the prophets, they're not just talking about Isaiah through uh, Zechariah or through Malachi. They're talking about also included in them is Solomon and David, right? And and many others. In this case, it's even a reference to the historical books as well. Because they all of them are testifying to the righteousness of God in the gospel. The gospel is seen in, in the entire Old Testament. Well, here Paul is saying that these have testified that right standing with God is obtained by faith and not by works. So if the righteousness of God is a righteousness which is by faith and not by works, and the, the, uh, a whole Old Testament is a witness to that, what do you suppose the gospel in the Old Testament is? That it's the righteousness of God that is by faith and not by works. Amen? Which is Paul's point in the first chapter of Romans in verse 17 when he says, quoting the Old Testament, for the righteous shall live by faith. Quoting from Habakkuk. Right? You with me? There wasn't a single Old Testament saint that fulfilled the law perfectly. Right? What were they hoping in? Their ability to keep the law? Surely not. They were hoping in the righteousness of God manifested in the Messiah to come. Amen? And in the great promise of his coming. But this entire Old Testament witnesses and testifies that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Just think about it. How about the book of Genesis, right? There we have Abraham. And we have the story of Abraham uh, going up on, on Mount Moriah, uh, which, by the way, is the locale of Golgotha. And he's going there to sacrifice his son at the command of God. What a glorious picture of the gospel. Amen? It's a testifying, it's a witnessing to the righteousness of God which is in Christ Jesus. Right? And what happens on the Mount of the Lord? The Lord provides. In fact, He named that place, right? (laughs) On the Mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Amen? Amen? Or how about, say, for instance, Psalm 22. You familiar with Psalm 22? Tell you how Psalm 22 opens up in the first verse. It says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David writing some. 900 years, what is it? 900 years before Christ. They cast lots for my clothing. They pierced my hands and my feet. My bones are out of joint, says David in Psalm 22. The prophets are testifying to the righteousness of God, which is in Christ. Or what about Isaiah 53? Could it be any more clear? Right? He was pierced, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. Right? And so the prophets testify of the righteousness of God to us. And so, here then see another important element of the Gospel. It's biblical. It comes out of the Bible. It's all over the Bible. It's in the first pages, and it's in the last pages, and it's in all the pages in the in-between. Are you with me? It's it's a biblical thing. Family, we got to get this right, okay? We can't invent some new message to get people saved. The message is an old, old message. It's an old, old message about an old, old historical reality that has already happened. Are you with me? We don't need new techniques. We don't need flowers we don't need a procession we don't need any of that foo-foo stuff okay here's what people need to know let's get them to the cross and let's start talking about the cross and let's start talking about the righteousness of God and let's start talking about why their life is a wreck and it's ruined because they're separated from God because they're alienated from God and hostile toward God because of their evil behavior Are you with me? Colossians 1.21. But but let me tell you the good news. God provided Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to heal you and to cleanse you and to fill you and to give you rest and to give you forgiveness. And you can be reconciled to God. And in the meantime, he'll put your life back together again if you do what he says. Amen? You see, that's a part of the message. But that's not the message. We don't go around telling people Jesus will fix your life. Apart from telling them about the cross and the righteousness of God and the propitiation of God's wrath. Right? You you remember that receiving the message includes repentance. That means people have to know what repentance means, which means you have to say the R word. Which means you have to say the S word because they are the S word manifested in the flesh. (laughs) Are you with me? That's why Joel can't save a flea. You understand what I'm saying when I say Joel can't save a flea? Joel Osteen doesn't say the S word from the pulpit, he doesn't use the word sin from the pulpit. He doesn't use the word repent from the pulpit. How can anybody be saved? You understand? Family, that is false teaching at its most wicked core. You understand what I'm saying? You've removed the gospel from the gospel. (laughs) By the way, he doesn't talk about cross, and he doesn't talk about blood, and there's a whole litany of other things he doesn't talk about because he's not talking about the biblical gospel and the biblical Jesus. Are you with me? You should be able to see that as clearly as I do. So, so, you know, that's why that's why we're going through all these details. So we get this thing down pat, and we've got it crystal clear, right? Right? You want to know how how faithful somebody's being to the scripture? Listen for the gospel in all of its elements in the things that they're saying. And see if they're really pointing you to Christ. Cuz the volume of the book is written of him. Amen? You with me? Okay. So then, verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ all those who believe for there is no distinction look what he says even the righteousness of god he's making this point right he said the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets right apart from the law being witnessed by the law and the prophets and then he says even the righteousness of god here's what he's saying that's stuff that god provides He's making the point that this is God's righteousness. You see, the righteousness that I have in Christ is the righteousness that God provided for me. And it is perfectly sufficient to meet the thing for which He designed it, which is my good and His glory. Amen? So I'm free. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm washed. I'm whole. I'm new, right? The devil keeps lying to me. But God's put his truth inside my heart. And greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Amen? He keeps trying to tell me all kinds of lies. He keeps trying to rob my assurance. He keeps trying to tell me, you've blown it again. See? See how worthless, right? And I just say, yep, you're right, devil. I'm worthless. I'm weak, but Jesus is strong. I'm a good sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Amen? I'm a good sinner who hates sin. Right? I hate it. I loathe it. When I sin, I loathe my sin. God who will deliver me from this body of death. Amen? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? For there is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Amen? That's that's the whole word right there. I'm not condemned. I am no longer condemned. I am justified in our Lord Jesus Christ by what He has done. Amen? Okie dokie. So then, having established two very important points. Number one, that the entire world, all mankind, is guilty before God's tribunal of judgment because of their failure to fulfill the law of God. And that God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. He laid those two things out. Now he says, okay, listen to what he says. This righteousness of God is through faith. In Jesus Christ. So, he gave us the bad news. He told us we were all desperate, desperate, held accountable to God, guilty, condemned by the law, but that now God has manifested his righteousness and that that righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a gospel right there, family. That is the essential core right there of the gospel. Paul delivers the sweetest, most glorious, and soul freeing words which can be spoken to a guilty sinner who is under the threat and condemnation of God's fierce wrath. That is, that God has provided the righteousness that he requires in Jesus Christ, and that we can possess it through faith alone in Christ alone. This is the gospel in a verse. And it is good news. Make no mistake. Here the sinner is told explicitly how he or she can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the words of Paul. And those are the words of God. Here is another element then. The gospel is Christological. It's a message about Christ. Right? Right? And Jesus is the center of the message. Right? Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel. It is Christocentric. To throw another big, long theological word at you. Right? You with me? Now, just think with me. Look at the text of this scripture in Romans, family. You see all these things I'm telling you? They're right here in these words. They're all right there in the very words of God. Look what he says. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Okay? Here, we see a great paradox in the gospel. It is both all-inclusive and very exclusive. Right? Just like it was universal... But very personal, right? Here, it's all inclusive, but very exclusive. What are we saying? Well, everyone can be included, right? But many people are excluded. You with me? He makes no distinction. You see what he said there for all who believe, for there is no distinction. What distinction, Paul? Well he's referring back when he was talking about Jew and Gentile. That's been the context of his whole discussion for three chapters. The guilt of the Jew and the guilt of the Gentile. And he's got he's saying, God doesn't make distinctions between Jews and Gentiles when we talk about faith in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. It's for all those who believe. Are you with me? There's no distinction. The gospel is not racial in any way, shape, or form. It's for all. It's not just the race of the Jews who uh, who somehow can be saved through Christ. Right? Right here. Romans 3, 22. For all those who believe, there's no distinction. Are you with me? Okay, then. So, Um, all mankind can be included in being justified before God. However, this righteousness of God is very exclusive because it is provided only for those who believe. You understand? Look, everybody's not going to get saved. Okay? Don't mean to let the air out of your bubble, but broad is the way. That leads to destruction, and many there be that enter therein. But straight and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. You know whose words those are. And you understand the point he's making. Right? The gospel is entirely exclusive. You cannot be saved unless you trust in Christ. Okay? So does that explain, does that make it clear what the requirement is? Right? That answers a lot of questions, let me tell you, when you start thinking about it. See then, that God's righteousness is provided only for those who believe. And that it is universal in its scope. But it is given exclusively to those who believe, have faith in Jesus Christ. And so, in the words of D.A. Carson, the gospel is received in authentic, persevering faith. See, this is an element of the gospel. The only people who are afforded the benefits of the gospel are people who have true, saving faith. Everyone else is excluded. Okay? That's why later on in the book, Paul says... How are they going to believe unless somebody preaches? And how are they going to preach unless somebody is sent? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing a message about Christ. That's how faith comes. And that's the object that faith is placed in. If you never see this, how do you believe? You understand what I'm saying? People have to come to faith if they're going to be saved. Okay? That's what Paul says. It's for all those who believe. And God's not making a distinction, any kind of racial distinctions whatsoever. He's not making a distinction between anybody. It's for all who believe. It's universal in its scope. The message goes out into all the world. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. For God's not making distinctions. This is what He means when He says God wants all men to be saved. This is what He—that's the, the reference. All men. That's what it means. All kinds of men. Look at it in its context. You'll see exactly what I'm telling you. Okay. God. God is not making any distinctions, and He doesn't want us to make any distinctions. He wants us to give the gospel freely to all men. And do good to all men. All men. All all what men? All everybody everywhere. You with me? God's not making distinctions between anybody at all. The gospel goes out into all the world. And let me tell you, everyone who believes is saved. Justification comes by faith. And faith is the gift of God. Amen? Amen? He gives it freely. Looks like I'm out of time. I agree. Good place to stop. You'll go away contemplating. I'll get all kinds of good questions. Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for these glorious words in the book of Romans. We thank you, God, for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God, what a glorious, glorious reality. Father, our hearts are at rest when we see Jesus not only dying for us, God, but living for us. We believe that you have forgiven our sins, God. And we want to lift up the cup of salvation. And we want to enjoy it and drink deeply from it, God. Father, we want to see your glory. We want to love you and serve you and walk in all your ways and follow you. God, we want to love our neighbor as ourself. It's our sincere desire, God. We're so thankful that that you have forgiven us of a debt we could never repay. And uh, God, we we just want to honor you now. We just want to bless you. Help us, God, to hate our sins and to love your righteousness, even our Lord Jesus. And help us, God, to press on in the faith, not to become stagnant, not to become weary, God. Encourage us, our Lord. Strengthen us, O strength. God, help us in this dark day. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Please, Father. We thank you so much for all that you're doing in our life. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts and strengthens and encourages us each new day. God, help our unbelief. We thank you for your love and your grace to us because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen.